0: This is Back to Back. Yo, what's up, Back to Backers? This is Willie Joy. Welcome to the show. This is Back to Back. This is my podcast. How we doing today? How's everybody? I hope you're feeling good I am uh, actually recording this on my birthday, so I'm feeling pretty good too. And by the time you hear this, well, my birthday will have already passed. That's right, you missed it. Another year, you missed it. But hey, I'm gonna go out tonight, do a little unannounced set with some friends. It's gonna be good, man. And I've got Will Eastman on the show today, another old friend of mine. He is the owner of U Street Music Hall in Washington, D.C., uh, one of the best nightclubs in the country, legendary amongst DJs. Rolling Stone named it one of the 10 top clubs in the country. I mean, it's, it's just one of the best spots. And I've never had a club owner on the show before. And he's an amazing DJ, amazing producer. His second album, Breathe, dropped last year. Really fantastic house vibes, indie, disco. He does it all. Uh, He's got two songs called Froggy and In Flames that are going to be in the new Megan Fox movie called Above the Shadows that's uh, premiering in Brooklyn at the end of this month and then premiering nationwide on July 19th. And Will is just about to announce the lineup for the second annual Bliss Pop Disco Fest in Washington, D.C. So if you're a fan of disco music at all, this is the event. You got to travel. You got to come check it out. Keep your eyes peeled to his social media. I'm going to link to that in the description of this episode. So it's really cool to have him on the show, and we're going to get into it in just a minute. Before I do, though, we are brought to you today by my friends over at Serato. Serato is the premier company for DJ software. A lot of your favorite DJs are already using it. I've been using Serato for over a decade now. And there's so much of my career. I mean, really just every pivotal moment, all of my favorite shows, I've played them all on Serato. You know, their flagship product, Serato DJ Pro, that's what all the big dogs are using. It's an award-winning piece of software. The support for it is amazing too. There's a great community behind it. Any problems you have, they're always there to help. Uh, But honestly, I really haven't had almost any problems in 10 years. It's sort of crazy. It's rock solid. You don't have to worry about something going wrong during your performance. So go check them out at serato.com. You can download the software for free, try it out, start messing around, and in the weeks to come, I'm gonna tell you a lot more about some other exciting things Serato is doing. But for now, serato.com, shout out to them, the best in the game. And look, I mentioned earlier, it is my birthday today, and you don't have to, but if you do wanna get me a present, the best thing you could do for me and the best way to support this show is just by helping me to spread the word about what we're doing here at Back to Back. This last month has been amazing. I've been seeing so many people posting up that they're enjoying the show, telling other people to go check it out. I love seeing that support and I love meeting everybody who listens to this show. So if you put up something in your story, if you send out a tweet, any of that, you know, I'm always going to reply or repost. Talking to all of you guys really is the best part of doing this show. And you can always talk to me too. My email is backtobackpod at gmail.com or you can hit me up on social media at Willie Joy or at backtobackpod. So for this conversation with Will Eastman, uh, I really love this guy. We met up at the nightclub he owns, U Street Music Hall in D.C., And uh, this was pretty fun. I've never done this. They had an off night. There was no show going on that night. So Will just opened up the club. We went in there and we just recorded the podcast in the green room of the club. And once that was done, we stuck around, we hung out, we played a bunch of music on the system there. It was really fun, man. Uh, Having a friend who owns one of the best nightclubs in the country. I'd highly recommend it. Definitely do that if you're able. And, you know, beyond being a club owner, Will is an amazing DJ, a great producer. There was so much to talk about. You know, he's also the main talent booker for the club, which is another part of the industry that I haven't really talked about too much on this show. So we just got into everything. He has an amazing life story. He's been a fixture of his community for a long time now. And U Street Music Hall, man, so many of the previous guests on this show have played there over the years. I mean, everyone has been through there. Everyone from, you know, people like Skrillex and Diplo to people like Sam Smith. They even had Drake pop up there once. It's just one of those special places in the country. It really feels like a second home every time I walk in. And Will is just an old friend who I was really happy to reconnect with. I think you're going to like this one a lot, so let's get into it right now. This is me and Will Eastman back to back. Let's go. Does this ever get old to you after like 10 years that you can just come to your own club on a Tuesday night and just sit on the couch? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> it's still mind blowing to me.
1: <laughs> Don't take it for granted. I I really really appreciate the privilege of of that.
0: Well, you told me uh, last time I saw you, it's like some crazy amount of money per day just to own the place. Yeah, to rent it, you
1: know, right? Uh, it's
0: because you have a lease. Yeah.
1: in this space,
0: so the rent is not cheap.
1: And one day, uh, I'd done this before, you know crunching numbers about what we spend here, how much we spend per day, per week, per hour, et cetera, et cetera, on costs and rent. And um, I I just sort of, our rent went up and I just calculated it once. And I was like, dang, we spend that much every day in rent. Next time I'm just sitting around, listening to records at home at like seven or eight o'clock on a weekday when we don't have a show, I'm going to go down to U-Haul and listen to it on the sound system. (laughs) And I might invite a friend, too. We'll just sit there. We'll pull the couch out of the green room and just sit there and listen to music. Yeah. It's like we're middle school kids again sitting in our parents' basement, except our parents basement has one of the best sound systems in <laughs> yeah, America. Yeah. It's like the
0: best basement of
1: all time. <laughs> Maniacal <laughs> well, laugh. Oh man, well <laughs> we did that. I mean,
0: just a couple of weeks ago you had me out here and yeah, that's literally you pulled out the the chairs and we were just playing tunes Man, it was it's fun, isn't it? It's amazing. I would do this all the time. I mean, that's another thing I wonder is, you know, U Haul is, it's the 10 year anniversary this year? No, nine. Nine years. Nine Nine last month, yeah. So almost 10. And I mean, that's a long time for any club to sustain. And I think that's a geological epoch in in club life. Oh my God. I mean, if you think (laughs) about, even if you just think about what was happening in dance music 10 years ago or nine years ago. Uh, and at Electro and Bloghouse—I remember it well. It's a totally different world yeah. from yeah. from the sounds, from who was popular, from the technology—you know, all aspects. It's a polar shift, and yet U-Haul is still here, right? It is,
1: and uh, we adapt with the times, and also stay exactly what we are. And the adapting with the times comes from the software, right? The people who work here. The people who uh, who do the programming and the promotion, right? And the hardware is pretty much here, what it is. We've done some upgrades. We've upgraded the sound system umpteen times. Right. Not, not a single component of it that was here when we opened is still here. It's all been yeah. replaced, upgraded. And it was a monster when you opened it. <laughs> well, yeah, and the idea is not to get louder, right? Obviously, there's mm. always... You can only go it's so pretty loud. loud yeah. it's, it's We don't need loud, we need quality, right? Yeah. So, and that's the idea. So it's, it's been, the upgrades have been in terms of more efficient amps mm. that are
0: more powerful and last longer with using less energy. Um, well, and so talk, for the, the listeners who may not know, I mean, I think that's a really interesting thing. You know, what makes a great club sound system? Because I think any club goer, instinctually, even if you don't know anything about sound or audio, you've had experiences where you go to a a club or a venue and you say, oh, it sounds great. I just, you know, you have a great night because of how good it sounds and maybe you don't know why. And then another night you go to maybe even the same club and it sounds like shit and you have a terrible night. Like talk a little bit about, you know, what do you think about when you're upgrading a sound system? What do you look for? Well, I think that you'll probably get as many different answers to this question as yeah.
1: people in the industry you ask. Of course. From my perspective, the thing that is one of the things that's important to the sound is that it's tailored specifically for that place. Right. And that it's maintained. Right. Because the sound system is a living, breathing thing. It's not just a thing that you buy and it lasts forever. Um, It wears out. It needs to be upgraded. So... You know, I consider the U-Haul sound system a, a living organism, and in order for that organism to perform well, like an athlete or an artist, <laughs> you right. got to nourish it. I love You got to pay that. attention to it. You, you can't just ignore it. That's this, that's this, it's simple as that. Mm. And nights where we have we have had breakdowns here, sure. I'll, I'll be completely transparent with you. I had a mortifying night here. We had a mortifying night here when the monitors uh, were blown the previous night before Seth Troxler and he had next to no monitors. And as you know, Willie, (laughs) the monitors are the show for the DJ. So, you know, Seth tried his best and had a a crappy date. Now we've had him back since then. We've been able to make up for it, but that's just a call you don't want to have from your manager. I was actually playing out of town or something, and mm-hmm. it's like, oh man, the 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 monitors are all effed up and I'm like, oh my God, we've got Seth Troxler tonight. Right. Of all people. Yeah, and I shoot
0: me now. A, a guy I've never met, but notoriously prickly guy, you know. He's he's he wants
1: what he wants. Right. And he, he plays great sets and they sound great. So I'm in the business of on this club end of things, getting DJs like that what they need of in course. order to shine and do a good job. Yeah, and I've learned that through being a DJ myself and having sound issues. And so, like I, I said earlier, for the DJ, the monitors of the show. Yeah, and if you have any problems with that, or problems with gear, or attitude with people, you know, you just you leave that place, and you're like, maybe I won't come back. Mm-hmm. And that's never anything I want somebody who's played here
0: to be thinking ever. Of course. Ever, ever. Yeah. And I, I know that you take a lot of pride in the reputation of this place, not only with the public, but with the artists who come to play here and and even just with your your friend. It's it's very obvious this is a labor of love. And I mean, I think that's what served all of you guys who originally opened the club so well is that many of you were DJs. Yes. It came from a DJ-first perspective and not a money-making perspective first, right? Yeah, five of the six original owners were DJs. That's amazing to me, man. And I think it goes, to be fair to you, too, I think it goes both ways, right? Because there's certainly DJs who will come in and not be respectful of your house and what you've built, right? Like somebody had to break those monitors before Seth Droxler played, right? No comment, Willie. Well, actually, I think no I was comment. there. I know who that was. <laughs> but, but in the same turn, right? I People mean, People are going to
1: be going through our calendar now and figuring <laughs> out, like, which, which time Seth played there? <laughs> who played the night before? But it, but it, sometimes you don't even know as a DJ. Sure. Right? You can... You you had a little too much to drink, your yeah, red line. Yeah. It happens. It happens to uh, pros to whom it should not happen. Right. Right? I mean, even, it's happened to all of us you know? for sure. So so sometimes you you know that DJ may not even know. Yeah. I, I don't even
0: know if they had any idea. Yeah. You're, that's the nicest clearly, response you could have given. Well, clearly
1: we didn't know because we went to open doors without calling for something. Right. So it was clearly one of those things where it's like, uh, it didn't even get reported in the opener, right? you know, so it's like, what do you do? It's like showtime. <laughs> Guess what? The gear
0: doesn't work. You're right. <laughs> and so, you know, over nine years, and, and we'll, we'll put a pin in U-Haul in a second, but uh, I, over these last nine years, not only have you you know been able to sustain the longevity you 're still here, you all still doing very well, still you know I think heavily entrenched in the community, but for you personally, Always. you know how do you not fall out of love with it you know because this kind of job to me i 've never owned a club, but it seems like such a labor of love. It seems like a ton of work, it seems like something that would just consume you and could easily burn somebody out. You know, for you, how do you sort of stay engaged, stay excited? Well, um, that is a very
1: interesting question. And I'll answer it with sort of a, a philosophical uh, statement about how I kind of my brain works and yeah. how I kind of live. So, Let's get, like, get deep. Like, for me, like, I, I don't look at it as work, I, I never have, I still don't. Um, and, and that was a problem for a long time because I didn't value my time as something that one might consider as work. Mm. If one were dispassionate and a little detached from the job and has a boss, it may be easier to approach with numbers and so forth that say, look, this is what my wage should be. And if um, if we can't meet that, maybe I'll look for something else. No hard feelings. Right. right. Um, but so I I've, I've never looked at it that way. So. I do work all the time. It can cause some uh, challenges with work-life balance. I was just reading the agent versus promoter um, Instagram account, which oh, is hilarious. God, that's
0: such a good account. If you're
1: in this business. And it was um, the, uh, I forget if it was agent or promoter. It doesn't really matter. It applies to both. It was like when you're on vacation and your significant other sees you working on your phone, it was like the scene from... Seinfeld or whatever, where yeah. somebody's throwing the phone in the ocean. And <laughs> right. it's like, that's just it. That's, you know, it never, ever shuts off. Well, sure. So the only way you can really manage that is to love it and stay engaged with it and to just own it, right? And do it. So, yeah. so I, I have, um, from time to time in the past nine years, gotten burnt out. One, one time in particular, I took some time off like uh half halfway through there four and a half years or something hmm. and just sort of like it becomes a way where I learned over time, you have to recalibrate your work-life balance every day and not just look at it as something like, oh, wait till it gets out of whack or right. whatever. Because I have a child now. He just turned three. Right. Um, you know, I have a, a loving, supportive wife that I love spending time with. We're going to go uh, actually on a couple of vacations this
0: summer. Ooh. I just
1: said the V word. I was going to say,
0: that's not a word you hear in this, this line industry, of work
1: very much. And, and was kind of verboten for me for a long time. Hmm. And if I was fortunate enough to get away, I was just bringing the laptop and stuff. But So I've just sort of learned over time you have to recalibrate that, be um, self-enforcing, and just try not to jump into it 100%. Because right. there'll be nothing left for you. You'll be an unshaved, unshowered shell of a human. <laughs> yeah. You got to take some time to do something else, right?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's something I talk about a lot on here is when your passion becomes your work, you know, and there, you can't really separate anymore what's fun and what's an obligation and what's work and what's play. It's it's dangerous, man. And I like what you're saying is that you just have to realize that that's happening and acknowledge that you, day to day, maybe you won't be able to see it, but you just have to set those types. Say, doesn't matter what else is happening. I have to take a break now. Yep. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And the thing about your... Um, Your time when you work for yourself is that everything comes at an investment cost. So you just got to make sure if you're investing really deeply in, in one part of it, that you're not shortchanging another part of that life well like, sure like not being in touch with your friends not not doing whatever uh that you need for like mental and psychological and physical health and welfare not eating well right like uh drinking too much smoking too much wh- whatever it is yeah. you know it's it's staying it's all, out
0: all night all of that
1: yeah it's all a balance and um you know that's something that is not always easy to like Balance on the balance beam. Sure. I when mean, it's four o'clock in the morning and you work for yourself.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, even, you know, even if you take a day like today, I mean, it's you know, past 10 PM, we just <laughs> met up here. I assume you've been, you know, doing business stuff during the day. You were hanging out with your family in the evening. My wife had a work event, so she didn't get home until like nine,
1: 9.30. So I was watching my son. And when I hit you back, I was like, can we push it to 10? I was like, well, he's a music industry guy. Oh, you might understand. Oh, it's fine with <laughs> me. But then I
0: think about for you, you know, this is like, you're just starting your third shift, you know? It is, it is, yeah. <laughs> It's a lot, man, yeah, and this is my artist shift. this is sure. my
1: like artist and hospitality shift, where it's like either i'm i'm making or playing music in a right. club, right, or i'm uh hanging out with one of my peers seeing her or him d j hanging out or hanging out with artists here to you know see how they're doing. see if they need anything, talk to them about what's going on in their lives and stuff. Um, That's the sort of like beautiful third part of this, you know, work with U-Haul family thing and then my, like, that's my music career.
0: Well, sure. But then even in that, there's yet another balance, right? Because not only are you a club owner, you're a music producer, you're a DJ, you're a talent booker, you're a promoter, I mean. All the above.
1: I long <laughs> ago man. reconciled that it would just be all of them yeah. because it, it, I'd, I'd probably get too bored if I did just one.
0: It, did you? I mean, before the club stuff happened. I know obviously you've been throwing parties forever, but. Yeah, I was, I was an occasional promoter for yeah. a long time. Like I became
1: a promoter when the club opened because you got to book a calendar right. when you own a club <laughs> as opposed to just, you know. Renting it out or yeah, booking just it doing for a it night, night, when you want right? to. Yeah. It's a big difference. Yeah. It's a really big difference. It was a huge. I went into it very naive mm. about the the time commitment and the absolute like hardcore uh, time suck. But but what changed it all was the relationships because then it became beautiful I t- had these relationships with agents and managers and artists over time and it right. was like oh well this is the fun part of it it's like the people you- right absolutely it's the part that's the soul of it
0: uh, yeah, I love the way you put that because that really is, that's the heart of everything we do. You know, you always hear that the music industry is based on relationships. I would say, you know, most industries are actually based on relationships. Yeah. <laughs> what industry <laughs> but, is it? <laughs> yeah, right. But I, that's really true at the end of the day. You know, if I think back of all my fondest memories, outside of just, you know, cool shows I've played, really what I remember are the people and, and you know, those whatever specific nights and those moments and it's cool that you've been able to sort of find a way to make new moments in new places in different points in your life, right? Because for anyone who wants to do this shit for a career for the long term, you have to switch it up, right? Yep. Every there's, It's always going to be changing. Something is always going to be changing around you that you have to adapt to. So let's put a pin in U-Haul for a second. We're going to come back to it. But I wanted to, to go back a little bit, like we were saying before the U Haul days. I had all, so here's the thing I, I was reading some old interviews and, and bio stuff before I came to talk to you. I had always thought you were originally from DC, and that's not the case. I know that's a complicated question for a couple of reasons. Yeah. But first of all, where did you grow up? I grew up in Wisconsin in right. uh,
1: kind of a smallish town called Nina. Um, And it's just south of Green Bay, about a 45-minute drive. Beautiful community. Um, They have paper mills there. They make manhole covers. Um, (laughs) It's one of those Midwest places that was a bit... Factory town. Yeah, factory town, but it didn't get hit hard in the 70s and 80s when when other places did. Hmm. And it eventually
0: caught up, but, um, you know... So was it kind of an you know more or less an idyllic childhood in that kind of like rural Midwest uh, factory town kind of way? I would say because um, it conjures like a strong image to my mind. It, from an image wise, from a cosmetic
1: uh, side, if you looked at the photos and the and the f- any you know Betamax film footage of my high school punk rock band playing or whatever. <laughs> Um, and it is a beautiful place. But you know, I also grew up there at a very different time. And it was kind of brutal to be different. It was brutal to be to have gay friends, to mm. play in a band, to have weird hair, you know, just to Were you always that kid? I was always that kid. And up I, I began I I really was always that kid and I became comfortable being that kid when I was fourteen. Okay. It was like A summer break in between the school years. And I remember coming back to school when I was 15 and all my classmates being like, What the hell happened to Will? (laughs) Like, he's a punk rocker now? And it was like, Yeah, I like punk music, man. That's what I'm into. And so that. So were you sort of hiding
0: it before? I or was it more I of just discovered an it that su- okay. I discovered
1: it that summer. I'd always loved music. I, I my first show was Black Sabbath when I was 13. Fuck, really? Judas Priest at the Brown County Arena, oh, man. Oh my god. 1983, man. The guy god. from Judas Priest rolls man. out in a Harley. It was great. It was oh, great. Oh my God. And I loved I loved metal and yeah. and,
0: and all of the MTV I stuff. I mean, Black like, Sabbath is still like, my top five in my top five. Groups of all time of any genre. This is sick show, oh, man. man. Uh, first time I ever smoked weed too. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mom. Um, um, but uh, where was I? So yeah, I was like a metal kid, a nobody, a loser. Like not even I wasn't. Were there other losers with you, or were you really just, just me just kinda... and my friend Troy? Okay, we were really like alone, and we we both sort of started picking up instruments. He picked up the guitar. And um, I was singing and we were writing songs. We were listening to The Clash and The Ramones. And I remember vividly, uh, I was like, who else from our school is into this music? And he's like, oh, Bill and Greg. And I was like, oh, yeah, let's ride our bikes over to their house, their houses. They lived right next door to one of okay. And they were like the punk kids that everybody picked on, but they had great taste in music. And they went to see shows, you know? Yeah. And so we knocked on their door and we were like, we're starting a band. Do you want to play with us? And they were like, I'm pretty sure you guys made fun of us like a couple years ago. <laughs> the losers making fun of the <laughs> bigger losers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then I think uh, Troy being the diplomat, he has changed the subject or something and mentioned the clash and, or something. And it was just like it clicked. We became great friends. Like we started a band, and um, and that was it. My life was never the same mm. after that. I I instinctively knew that this was probably the closest I would ever get to like really being myself mm. in life, mm. really. And so, don't ever let it go. So, I
0: never let it go. It's like a feeling of relief or something? Just a feeling of just being comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. Like, just... Well, finding that at 50, I mean, some people don't find that till much later than that. It made it a lot easier to negotiate life
1: because authority figures like teachers or my dad would ask me questions, right? And I remember vividly my dad asking me a question about... A tape I was listening to, and he's like, How could you stand this music? This is garbage. And I was like, Dad, this is such and such. They're from the UK. They have a certain style and they have a message. And then he was just like, Okay, I give up. And I walked away. <laughs> but it's right. like, before that, I could have just been like, Oh, my dad hates my music. I'm crushed. Or, or this person doesn't approve of this. It gave me confidence to actually believe in what. I was doing and thinking that felt so right. And it turned out that that gut feeling has never steered me wrong, mm-hmm. ever, on anything. And I just learned to trust it and, and run with it. And it was not easy. Like, I, I tried to really keep it in a corner to, to like, keep it <laughs> sort of hidden for a long yeah. time. Like, I, I went to college, right? All my bandmate friends tried to make it in their band. I'm in college right Why? right, because i'm a nerdy
0: kid I'm gonna play in bands on the side in college, but I'm a practical kid, sure right you know yeah. good kid following the path your parents want i'm sure exactly yeah absolutely and um and that was tough, that was tough
1: right up until the point when I quit my day job okay. twelve years ago, and um I told my my parents and I could tell they were supportive, but they were like, I've been used to telling all my friends that my son's a historian, he works at the Smithsonian, and now I gotta tell him he's a DJ. And all the questions are like, which radio station? Yeah, and course. it's like, nah, not that kind of DJ. <laughs> and then their eyes just glass over and they're like, I have no this
0: is this kid on drugs? I have no <laughs> idea what's going on with this. Like, what's going on with this kid? Okay, so you just there's a lot to process in there because that's a jump of, you know, decades. I skipped right? about
1: I skipped about thirty years yeah. there <laughs>
0: <laughs> which is fine, which is totally fine. But I mean, let's talk about, uh, you know, getting out of the small town, going off to college, that moment. Oh, yeah. Where did that you go was to beautiful college?
1: beautiful. University of Minnesota, baby.
0: Ooh. And I did that. And you. We talked about this, right? Because I yeah, grew up in Minnesota. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. So I think you may have been, I mean, you were almost certainly in college when I was still living there and that's just we may have gone to some
1: sense. of the same shows at First Avenue the 7th Street Entry
0: entirely possible because that's the club I grew up in I mean that was my home for it in the same way that you're talking about sort of finding an identity and finding confidence through your band and through punk music I mean that was First Ave for me for years me too that that's, was it that, was my that, home that, that was so to fast forward from
1: my childhood band right, right to being in college right then when I got to college, and by the way, I went to Minnesota because all, so many kids from my high school went to University of Wisconsin, and Minneapolis had a better music scene at mm. that time. So I'm like, uh, I'm going to Minneapolis. I knew, I knew nothing about the school. <laughs> I, did, I did not give a shit about the academics. It was just so about the music It was scene. like Soul Asylum, Prince, the replacements, the suburbs. I'm going to Minneapolis. Yeah. And I'm... gonna. I've looked at the listings for First Avenue Nightclub. That's the first place <laughs> yeah. I'm going, right? So I did college radio, I, I played in bands in, in college, and I hung out at First Avenue and 7th Street Entry a lot. Mm. And I got to know every single person who worked there. So by the time That's I was done right with there. college, they were sick of me, Yeah, right? Like my my band had played there, I had interviewed people there, I was friends with people who worked there. And why? It's because it's all the same people who are doing the same shit that I loved and did.
0: Right. right? So it was just, it made sense, right? And was there a thought in your head at that time in your life that this could actually be something you could do as opposed to the college career, as opposed to the good job? Yes, the the band end of it. And Mm -hmm. that's where I was going.
1: I was playing in several bands and I wanted to do the band thing. It just turns out that I'm not that great at the band thing. <laughs> what were you playing? I was playing uh, guitar, singing, and playing bass. And I think that was my problem right there. So I, I, I wanted to write songs. And I can write songs. I cannot sing them because mm-hmm. I have a shitty voice. Mm-hmm. Right? But when you come from a punk rock band Doesn't where matter. you're rewarded for screaming right. and jumping around, <laughs> you know. but that does matter when you get into your 20s and start playing in indie rock bands where songs actually matter. And so we were okay. We just, you know, we, we did a lot of big shows, actually. I, I played a lot of crazy places opening for big bands. Did you guys tour? No, we just were like the locals who got the good gigs. Yeah, sure. We were like tight and showed up and responsible and new people. Yeah, right? so And I'm sure you probably had a, we a just decent never broke. local fan base, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, we just never broke. You know yeah. none of them um, none of them deserved to break and and I think part of that is because you know none of us were really in it the way you and I are in it yeah. right now, right I wasn't a lifer yet, yeah, I was you were like going to college. hey, maybe this could work on the side, and it's one of those things where you don't really realize how important a distinction is until you've made it or you've seen people make it, and it makes a really big difference because yeah. you make. You behave differently and you, you make a lot of different decisions based on the really
0: long haul, not just this problem that I'm facing right now. Do you wish that you had taken it more seriously back then? Would you change anything? From- no. Yeah. In hindsight, it, it could have happened, quote unquote,
1: to me earlier, but I was in no state to do it at that point. I did not have the emotional intelligence, the self-awareness, or the work ethic at that point. I needed to do some living. And so, you know, fast-forwarding and going to grad school, getting
0: a job, and... And in this time, just to to, uh, side tangent for a second, you know, you mentioned you were uh, doing college radio show. And you were going to first Ave, seeing all different kinds of shows. Was there any exposure to DJs? Was there any exposure to what would become, you know, dance music for you? Yes, and I really wish I had been paying
1: closer attention. But um, there was—it was like a look when you when you're in your early twenties and you have a, a a bit of freedom. And you love something, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah, it's just you cannot get enough of it. Absolutely, and you just stand in it and you swim up that stream, and you're like, I want as much of this as I possibly can get. Yeah, every night it's never boring. In that era, I saw like Happy Mondays, I saw Chapter House, I saw Ride, My Bloody Valentine, uh, Stereo Lab, like Galaxy Five Hundred, like you name it, any cool band that's coming through town I am there right so including like um there was a Sunday night dance party
0: God, there. That, that's literally that, where I grew up that was yeah. great
1: you know I remember hearing like uh, KLF uh-huh uh-huh for the first time there yeah and
0: also um I mean that just that Sunday night dance party man I just because you're one of the few people I can actually talk to about that event I mean, that, I think, shaped my brain so strongly for what I do now because you would go there and you would hear every style of music. Yes, yes. You would hear house music yes. into Nirvana, into the Beastie Boys, into some weird disco song I'd never heard. I mean, and this is in the, the mid to late 90s. Yeah. Like, this predates all the shit I usually talk about on this show by a good decade. And 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 I was
1: there before that. Right. I was there in the late 80s and early 90s. Okay, so there you go. So they were playing like KLF and like all the uh, like Madchester stuff. Right. So yeah, it was dance and it was rock stuff too because it wasn't unheard of to hear like a, a crazy big rock song. Of course. Next to like, some Chicago house track, right? right? And that's something you can do when you have self-confidence and, like, a real, like, curator's brain. Of course. And First Avenue gives those DJs that. But they also had the video element, yes, if you remember that. I do. And it was the first place, first club I ever went to that had a live VJ mm. manipulating the, the imagery that you're seeing. And it really is, like, the first avenue sunday all age dance night was like the first rave i I went to
0: yeah me too man a hundred percent and it's only in talking to you now am i kind of putting it together that that must have shaped the way i think about music because the thing i talk about on the show all the time is that in my brain to me i i'm not great at uh, saying, you know, I like this genre and I don't like this genre because to me, it's it's much more about energy of a song mm-hmm. and and sort of the way it makes me feel rather than the way it sounds specifically. Yeah. And I really didn't think about it that much, but I think a lot of that must have been shaped when I was going to that night on those Sundays. It lasted it's, a long time, every Sunday. I mean, I was, you know, 15, 16. It's right when those neurons were all being yep. connected. yep. And huh. it's the only thing you can do in Minneapolis if also you're true. underage also like true. that. So,
1: like, we were all there. Um, another thing that's really crazy to think about is Kevin Cole from KEXP back in the day did a, a techno party on the First Avenue, 7th Street Entry stage. Right, which on is like, sort of the, the smaller room yeah, of the club. Yeah, yeah.
0: on, like, t- Mondays or Tuesdays or something, and it was called Depth Probe. I saw the flyers for that and I never went, but I know that event. Well. It was crazy because yeah. it was like very heavy, heavy tech
1: And I would go in there with my friends and they would just turn around and walk out. <laughs> and I would be like, I need to know exactly what's going on. Right. right. Like I would just go to the bar and just sit there until I felt comfortable dancing mm. and just be like, who the fuck is doing this party? Like, where is this music coming from? <laughs> what right? is this music? And that was my first introduction to Kevin Cole, who would later go on to do the um, Rev Radio and, like, become right. a radio yeah, legend. Just, but yeah, he yeah, was yeah. like Be super influential Midwest yeah. DJ. So DJed Prince after parties at... Paisley Park Fuck like man. was just like
0: one well, for the listeners maker. who may not know we're talking about uh, the club in Minneapolis called First Avenue which is where Prince shot Purple Ray and the iconic, you know, I mean, it doesn't get more iconic than that. It's a and legendary. if you haven't
1: seen Purple Rain, just stop listening to this right now and go watch it.
0: Well, you could finish this and <laughs> watch it. <Yeah. laughs> Sorry, Willie. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Raves and that sort of the Sunday night being sort of the first rave. Were you were there raves? Actual raves? Were so you there going were to so raves? that's
1: that's the third thing I was gonna mention. I'm pretty sure I saw DVS one. Back then at some warehouse, but the thing is like (laughs) back then, we we didn't pay attention to who was DJing. We had no idea. We didn't didn't give a shit. It's just like, look, there's going to be this crazy party. There's going to be lots of drugs. And there's going to be amazing music. Just show up. Right. And bring some beer, right? And <laughs> yeah. try not to be a dick and don't get kicked out, right? <laughs> yeah, if
0: you're lucky, yeah.
1: So we, I would go to those parties all the time with DJs and, you know, sometimes dance, sometimes just hang out. I, I, I have no idea who played any of those parties. I yeah. would love to have some sort of like way to check my calendar
0: yeah. <laughs> and cross-reference. I mean, for you, you know, coming from the band background, coming from, uh, you know, the, the rock, the metal, the punk background, did you have any kind of attitude about dance music or did you just immediately say, oh, this is great? I feel like I was very
1: open to it, whereas most of... The vast majority of my peers in the rock scene were; it was anathema to them. Yeah, of course. You, you got to understand this was the day and age of Nirvana and grunge, yep. and that owned everything. Man, all my friends suddenly like started wearing cut-off jeans and they had beards and long hair,
0: and I was just like, "What is happening?" But that you know, that scene was a reaction to you know the pop mainstream world at the time right so it makes sense that it was sort of prickly to anything that wasn't that right yeah and that everything that that wasn't this sucked and was uncool and it's cool that you were able to sort of have an outside perspective on that a little bit i have always been um a omnivore musical omnivore
1: and i've always given everything a, f- a fair shake it's it's just because of the weird obsessive way my brain is wired from music yeah i can't not give something a listen because what if it's the most amazing thing
0: ever were you like that as a kid or what if even? it gives
1: you an idea of something that you could do that would be the
0: most amazing thing ever I mean, in music you're preaching to the choir here man but i mean were you actually like that as a kid too like i you was always i listened
1: to everything there was a show was
0: there a lot of music in the house yeah oh my god so my dad was an, a, a hi-fi
1: enthusiast mm. so we had a reel-to-reel in oh house. shit which That's is serious. which is weird for like a white guy in Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really weird listening to all this. He listened to Sly and the Family Stone and
0: and real to real man. He you was, really don't hear he was, about that outside of a studio.
1: He was a real a real. He's he's still alive. He's he's, he's a real. He was a real like um, music loving guy. And I remember listening to FM radio in his truck with the uh, the Toyota truck where. People would block off the other letters just so it said, yo. <laughs> he had one of those. <laughs> and we would listen listen to FM radio. And I just remember vividly like all these like classic rock songs from the 70s. Mm. Which is why I have a, like a soft spot in, in my heart for a lot of that stuff. But it was just like, um, yeah, there was music... At, Ev- everywhere, okay. Everywhere, like my parents. When I was much younger, they owned a couple bars. When I was in high school, they owned a music venue, really called the Ridgeway. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, oh, from shit.
0: seventeen to twenty-one, my parents owned a nightclub. Wow. So opening U-Haul must have been somewhat significant in that way, too. They told me to run as fast as I could. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's probably good advice.
1: <laughs> I, I think uh, they were still holding out hope that I would, you know, run,
0: yeah. run for Congress or yeah.
1: something. Um, but it, it was that, that was a very formative time for my parents to be out of the house every Friday and Saturday night. Sure. Because I threw a lot of parties in our basement. <laughs> and of course, I had to DJ those parties. So those were really some of my first DJ gigs. Was what was that like? DJing the. So Just you on a turntable? It was just like you pick uh, a song, right? And yeah. then put on another song. And then I realized. But was it just
0: one turntable? Is that what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I realized that you could put on a mix or you could put on an album side but that you would get greater response if you could pick the next track based on the context of the previous track and whatever track you might be thinking of playing after that wow. and who's there and how many people and what the vibe is and so when i started doing that i remember this vividly cuz my dad had this dope collection so i i you know my records are upstairs yeah. right all his records are downstairs at the finished you know, basement bar, right? Yeah, where he listens to him. <laughs> so, I was just going through his records the first couple of times, just playing shit from Motown. Right, I played. I remember the first time I dropped um, uh, Jackson Five, "I Want You Back" on forty-five to a bunch of like high school kids, and they were like, "You are blowing my mind!" Right? I mean, that reaction—it's and I'm timeless, like, "Yeah, this man. is a great song," yeah. right? So then I was like, okay, I'm just gonna do this. Like, you know, just play a song after a song after a song after a song. And before you know it, it's a great fucking party. Right. Fuck, man, you were on the DJ shit early. <laughs> I didn't even think of myself as I wouldn't think of myself as of a course. DJ for over ten years. Of course. Right? Like it was it was such an interesting like um difference in
0: cultures and backgrounds. Right. Like, well, and so let's let's get a little closer to when you did start thinking of yourself as a DJ. You mentioned you went to grad school. What were you going to school for? I came here to study uh, museum studies. Okay. And uh, I
1: went to George Washington University. So that's couple, when you came to DC. Yep, did yeah. a couple internships at the Smithsonian, landed a job there, worked there for 10 years while I DJed on the side the entire time.
0: What? position did you have at the Smithsonian?
1: I started as like a program assistant and I ended up as a uh, project historian and program producer. I worked on... What does num- that mean? So, I was on the trust money side. So, mm. if anybody any of your listeners out there are familiar with government employment <laughs> and in D.C. there are a lot of you oh, there's yeah. federal government jobs where you're a civil servant, you have to pledge allegiance to the United States of America, put your hand on your cro- on, on your heart Literally in a ceremony, yeah. right? And then there's like private trust fund positions and you can get hired and fired on a moment's notice, right? And so I was hired through quote unquote soft money okay. in academia on a continuing like renewal every other like three to five years mm. or whatever. I think I was renewed three or four times. And so... Um, yeah, I was basically hired on the programmatic end of things. Okay. So at the Smithsonian, the federal government covers like building maintenance and federal government salaries, but it's private money, donations that do the exhibits and I the programming. See. So I was working for a great center there called the Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. Hmm. And we did programs on history of science, technology, engineering. C- cool stuff. Yeah. It was I mean, fun.
0: That, sound, that actually sounds really cool. And it sounds like not the kind of job you would hate necessarily. I loved it.
1: Yeah. I totally loved it. It was what I thought yeah. I was meant to do. I, I did a documentary on uh, Les Paul. I spent 35 hours interviewing him wow. on camera. All that footage is in the archives of wow. National Museum of American History. And that came out as a PBS documentary.
0: That's incredible.
1: Did um some research on the, the electric guitar, um, history of electronic music. Um the 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 two big things I was hired for that sort of paid for my job was a centenary exhibit on the Nobel Prizes and an exhibit on the American presidents, which is still up after 18 years. Wow. They should take that damn thing down. <laughs> getting, but um but really like that that was what I thought I was meant to do, right? Mm. And then I went to work on a job um, to launch a museum, a music museum project that unfortunately didn't come to fruition. Um, And I was at a point in my life where I was like, you know what? This thing I started doing the same month I started my job at the Smithsonian, actually, um, June 1998,
0: is actually doing really well. This thing being the DJ, DJing, thing. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I really love it, and um, you know, I get invitations to DJ all over the place. Maybe I'm not getting invitations to give lectures as a historian. Maybe this is something telling me something, mm. right? And so I, uh, I took a risk. I took the leap, right? And um, and were you making a decent amount of money? I off was of DJing at that making point? enough that if I um, factored in my savings. Mm-hmm. I could do it for six months and not take any hit to my like, standard of living or worry about bills or, or right. whatever. And that savings lasted me two years. And by the end of two years, I was making way more than I ever did with a day job. So I knew like,
0: okay, here you go. This right. is what you're going to do. Wow. And and so that's, uh, you said 10 years, so that would be... 12 years ago now. <laughs> well, no, but uh, 10 oh, yeah. years from oh, 98 yeah. to yeah. 2008 it was is two, when you... It was, it was actually 2007. Okay. So like
1: nine and a half years, yeah.
0: Which, I mean, that's right around when things were really exploding for what would become the DJ scene that we know now, yeah. right? Yeah, 07.
1: Absolutely. Indie dance, new disco, dubstep, EDM, Club music—it was all percolating there. Yeah. It was all in the cauldron, just like coming up.
0: So, you know? and you mentioned, uh, you know, Moon 98 Batom was
1: right around the corner, <sighs> right? Oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, and so you mentioned, you know, ninety-eight was when you started DJing in DC, and in those ten years, you know, before you quit the job. How much were you DJing? Were you throwing events at that point? What oh, was man. the scene like? So, uh, so at the beginning, once a month.
1: At the end, like half a dozen times a month, yeah.
0: throwing half of those parties. Yeah, you know. Um, and because that's uh, it's I think worth saying. It's not only uh, U-Haul that you've been doing that's been running for so long. I mean, you have. Uh, bliss pop and the whole bliss empire which yeah well that that was the name of my party
1: that i started um, right. in in 2000 after i'd been djing for a couple of years i just decided you know what like nobody's doing this type of music i want to play i'm just gonna start my own party
0: and that type of music how would you define that type? it of was music?
1: like um
0: going back to first avenue yeah, sunday always yeah. dance party <laughs> it was like guitar dance
1: pop mixed with dance music mixed with just like cool new stuff mixed yeah. with like cool old stuff yeah like oh, hard to define sure, but completely yeah. like a revolutionary concept in the year 2000 right because mashups didn't exist
0: yet and wouldn't exist for another like five six years minimum
1: Bloghouse didn't exist yet like uh, ableton didn't exist yet serato didn't exist yet yeah. so the idea of just playing like charlatan's the only one i know with like New Orders, Temptation with like The Faint and Interpol with like The Cure and Jackson Five with like Saint Etienne and then uh, La Latigra and whatever else new cool shit is coming out. Yeah. And in the next couple of years after I started that party, I remember the, the albums I went into that party with like. Basement Jack's Discovery, like our Basement Jack's Rudy, like yeah. Daft Punk's Discovery, yeah. like all of that stuff. Within the next couple of years, that whole thing would just blow up. Right. You'd have DFA records. And then it was like, oh, okay, I can play music <laughs> by former punk rock musicians like myself who also love DJ uh, disco and also DJ on the side in a punk rock club. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, finally. Hallelujah. It's more like, people understand. It's like to it's like stick to what you love and eventually it'll come to you. Like, yes. It was a beautiful thing yes. in 2002 when, when that all blew up. And
0: then it all just sort of went from there. Like really. Like, and I mean those parties got very popular fairly quickly, right? They were
1: – I remember the first one I did was um, September 2000. We did like 45 paid and i th- i was pretty sure that was going to be the the last party i ever promoted yeah. and the club owner came up to me and said i'll see you next month eastman and by 3 years after that we were doing 400 people yeah right in a 200 cap room <laughs> yeah that's what ins and outs like with yeah. a line the yeah, entire that's night good. right so like then Bloghouse just really put it all in blast. Like, that's when, that was, like, we were relatively anonymous here. You'd have to be in D.C. to know about this, mm-hmm. right? But then, 03, 04, the internet blows up, right? You've got Fluxblog in 03, the first MP3 blog. Disco Bell starts not long after. You know, they wrote about all of our stuff. They did. Our first singles yeah, on Disco Plant, Bell was a right? huge like, early love supporter. Love them, yeah. But that was sort of the on- it, the entry of like the rest of the world where it's like oh there's you can see photos of parties in New York you can see who's there you can see there's like message boards like everything just kind of blew up
0: yeah and you start realizing that there are like-minded people in different places in the world I'm not the only one <laughs> wow <laughs> right <laughs> and that there's you know sister events happening yes, right yes, yes, and that your parties aren't the only ones yeah it's I mean that was a an awakening I think for kind of everyone in the scene. Yeah. And that's that's what I mean by community too. Like I'm very steeped
1: in the DC community. I've been here now for 23 years and but in this era that we're ta- era that we're talking about, 02, 03, 04, like that was when I started to feel part of a broader community yeah. that existed of people that were like mostly mid-Atlantic based, right? There's the holler board. There's like all our friends. But then through that, you got to meet other people. Like I met you through a recommendation from somebody probably from the holler
0: board, which was like, look, you want to play in Chicago? Hit up Willie Joy. Right. He's the dude
1: there. Yeah. And I
0: was throwing my monthly party there, which was definitely not as successful as yours. But I mean, I threw it for a good four years there. And, uh, yeah, man. I think that, I mean, probably the first time we met was when I brought you out to play yeah. that, right? You did great events. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, they, they were, were don't they get were me good, wrong, yeah. they were good. Yeah. But it, those four years taught me that I was not cut yeah, out to yeah. be a promoter. You <laughs> exactly. <know>? <laughs> 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 I mean, we had crazy events, but then they were also like, I always felt like they were cursed somehow, like the whole idea was just cursed. Like every time we had something that was going to be really, really big, something would happen to throw a wrench into it, you know? The cosmos was sending you on a different path. It was. (laughs) And and I don't even believe in that shit, but it was. (laughs) Like, it was just little stuff, man. Like, I, I won't go on a rant, but little stuff, like... Uh, we booked uh low budget from holotronics yeah. and holotronics to me was the gold standard at yeah. the time they were my heroes and uh it was a big deal i think it was a 2 year anniversary we booked low budget and uh he got in and it, you know the party was going well and then he literally just fell asleep at his hotel and just never <laughs> came to the club <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god. And oh so, my god.
0: You know, I, I was texting, I was calling him, and then finally it became obvious, you know, people were waiting to see him. That whole thing. It was w- like funny shit like that. Like low budget, Willie just put you on blast for sleeping to hey, gig. Much love much love the low budget, but that's what happened. <laughs> so yeah, that that was that's we that's had one horrible. last story that you're gonna laugh at. <laughs> okay. We the biggest probably biggest booking we ever got was we got the XX to do do a DJ set oh, wow. at like the height of the XX like explosion. Oh my God, they're still huge. They're still huge now. But this was like when they were you know the first time around when they got okay. huge when everyone was time, like I remember that one salivating for yes. them and they were coming to play my tiny little party a room they were way too big to come and DJ and uh, obviously Jamie XX would go on to be a very famous DJ and so they showed up. And uh, Jamie just smoked cigarettes in the (laughs) back while his sister DJed the whole night. (laughs) When, you know, much love to both of them again, but she's not a great DJ. (laughs) It was was just little stuff like that where I was like, you know, I I don't need to do this. (laughs) I feel you, man. And, uh,
1: you know, those things happen. And, but what you do as a promoter is just solve the problem. Like, right. Like the problem would be like you just have somebody with that guy He's probably hung over, Like, let's just knock on his hotel room, make sure the driver's there, go pick him up. See, like, the don't thing. leave anything to chance. Like, yeah. like, schmooze with Jamie, just be like, yo, I'm looking forward to what you're going to be playing later, right? Like, what are you playing? Like, you know, it's just little <laughs> things like that. It's See, w- literally like, Th- this is why you own a club. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Nothing just happens on its own. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing at all, right? <laughs> You're, I mean, absolutely (laughs) true, man. And, you know, so for you, uh, you're throwing these parties, they're getting popular, you're becoming a known quantity locally in D.C. and in the region, networking with other people uh, around you. When do you start making this music that you can DJ yourself? Ah, yes. so that was um, 07, 08.
1: I think my first remix came out in 07. It was a band. Oh, God, I can't remember their name. They're, they're no longer around. Yeah. But they had hit me up. Like and, a lot of bands. And from they were like, you know, they were like a, like electro rock. Yeah. You know, like, like the faint meets uh, like the killers or something. Sure. You know, before either one of those. Well, this would be. No, the killers were already around anyway. Forget my timeline. They're yeah, like yeah. electro rock. Yeah. So, like, they hit me up and are like, would you do a remix? we like you as a DJ. Um, y- you opened for us last time we were in town, which was true. Would you like to remix this? And I was like, sure. Yeah. Right. I was like, somebody asked me to do a remix. <laughs> like, uh, okay. <laughs> I, guess, I guess, I like, guess that makes oh, me, shit, how do I, make and then a I was remix? like, how do you do this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So I talked to all my friends and they're like, get Ableton. So I got Ableton and then I played around with it. And I uh, just, you know, I wouldn't say it was like that I fell in love with it. I wouldn't say that it was just like uh computer love at first sight, yeah. but it gave me a really good notion of like, okay, if you want to do this, this is the tool right. to do this, learn the tool. right? And then I learned to love it. I really learned to love it. Like I learned, the shortcuts mm-hmm. and like the tutorials and it was it was fun right over time but it it and came and everyone was over kind of learning time. at that
0: time yeah yeah
1: you could know, get a cracked version of
0: of anything of right of course you know when I think about that era because that 's right around when I was learning Ableton too, and I think a lot of our peers now that 's right around when a lot of people were learning that style of of music production, and so back then there weren 't really standards yet, you know everyone was doing something different, yep. I mean the quality sonically varied wildly, but at the time that was okay. And it's very different from now where, I mean, if, if your material doesn't stand up sonically, it doesn't matter how good of, yeah. of an idea you have. Yeah. But back then, I mean, you could produce, you know, something in a garbage way and it could still be cool, you know, cause there just wasn't that much out there.
1: I, I agree, man. There, there was not a zillion, a zillion For better or for producers. worse, you know? I mean, I did my first remix in a cafe in Berlin mm. on headphones over the course of like two and a half afternoons yeah. right because it was due and that's what i sent in and it um it did okay like it it wasn't the lowest selling remix on the release so right. i was like okay like but very quickly i very soon i'd go back and listen to it and be like you you need to do better mm. if you want to really do this and um so i just kept doing it and partnering with people who had who had more skills as producers and with the software than I did and kind of like the same way I learned how to play guitar and learned how to DJ. I just watched other people. Yep. And then went back and figured that out on my own, yeah. and learned my own technique from right. ba- like reverse engineering it.
0: And and a few of both of our early releases did end up on the same label, which <laughs> you just reminded me of. Plant music, yeah, plant music, <laughs> man! Shout out to Stretch Armstrong, <laughs> Stretch and Dom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I look back at records I put out in those areas and I was like, "Oh, I see the idea. It was a, it was a good yeah. idea. It was." terribly executed but you know i, I could still appreciate the the passion <laughs> hey man dom and stretch had a good year like
1: i th- i think plant had some really great songs some really great signings
0: oh yeah no and, i mean, they worked and, with a lot of great artists yeah, yeah that more so i would say even more so than the music that came out i would say they picked really good people yes yes Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, you know, and for the listeners, we're talking about uh, this New York-based label called Plant Music, uh, which was not a big label e- even in the dance scene. It wasn't really like a big-time thing that everyone knew, but it did end up uh, sort of consolidating a lot of people who would go on to be influential in one way or another.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Definitely, they had they had a great year, and and good hearts, you know, Dom's an uh, Irish guy lived in New York and Stretch was like the, one of the OGs of hip hop, Stretch one and Babido show. One of the most show, legendary you know? hip hop DJs alive, yeah. And uh, it still blows my mind that the guy who helped sign my first single, New Biggie, like, <laughs> wow.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point, fair point. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, once you started putting out music, right, and being an artist in the in a new way and people started knowing you by your music, right? And booking you for the songs you would put out, not just for your parties or for your DJ sets. How did that change your perspective? How did that change how you operated just in general?
1: Well, it gave me a real appreciation for just how hard this business is. Yeah. And just how crazy it is when um you go someplace and you may not be totally well known right like just just in terms of like the gear setup it was a it was a really eye opening thing to mm. me and it made me appreciate a number of things one was it made me appreciate what i have here in dc and two it made me appreciate just how Difficult and challenging, all of this is. And that if I could just, you know, if there were some ways to improve on it, that I, I, this, these early like going on the road experiences, these were, I remembered these viscerally really? when we were planning U Haul. Mm. Cause, cause I was remembering like certain situations where it's like, look, man, you're, you're like here. This is your life. You're trying to present it to an audience in a way that's going to be emotional and it's gonna have a connection with them, why should you be worrying about whether or not there are enough power outlets for your gear? <laughs>
0: right. Like, fuck that.
1: Just fuck that, right? Yeah. And all that stuff like really
0: like- yeah. like, like And when you do have to worry about that, that can throw off- yes. everything. Yes. Something as small as that. Absolutely,
1: yeah. absolutely. Um, so, but it was also great to make all these connections with people, people I just knew from the internet. Every yeah. time you go to a new town, it's like, hey, I knew you from the internet. Now I know you in person, yeah. right? Now, next time I see you at Movement or Miami Music Week or whatever, like, I know what you look like. I know how you pronounce your last name. I'm not just reading it from
0: an email, right? right? Um... Which is, that stuff's uh, important. Oh, it's very important for all aspects of the business, no matter what you're trying to do, um, those personal connections. And it reminds me of something you said earlier, which is you know, you would spend so much time at First Avenue that you everyone just knew you. And not because you were showing up there saying, hey, l- do something for me, but just because you showed up and were excited to be there and supported what they had going on and then eventually, you just become a part of it, right? They absorbed That's me the like a, an me. amoeba. There you go. Right?
1: Yeah. Like the music industry absorbed me. Yeah. And, and I didn't have an agenda other than just to enjoy it. Yeah. And maybe also just be a little proactive, yeah. right? Like, okay, um, hey, I heard such and such told me you were looking for a bass player. Like, have you checked out her Cause I think her old band broke up Mm. and she was pretty good. Yeah. You know, just little stuff like that where it's like, look, I happen to be here at this moment in time and know these two people. And you may be the only person on earth who has that specific like right. Intel. Oh dude. Just give it to them. Yep. They can do with it whatever they want. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with benefits
0: to you. I don't care. I don't care if it ever even happens. It's just like, I put the idea out there and but that energy will come back to you eventually. You know what I mean? It's a karmic like, thing. Yeah. The, and I just had Diplo on the show and he said exactly the same thing. He's he said more or less that he thinks that's a giant key to his success. It's just that over the years, that's something he's always liked to do, is just, you know, connect people. Think and of how and many people, people Wes has connected. Right. Like just just think think of that for one second oh yeah he's done like, it for me a multiple holy times, crap and i'm you know and i'm like not his closest friend you know <laughs> it's yeah it blows my mind to think about that kind of shit man but so to bring it back to you you know as you're you're going along you're touring you're releasing music you put out uh And I know you had various projects, but you put out an album uh, fairly soon after. That that, wasn't until 2017. The first album. album? Yeah. Oh, I thought 17 wasn't. I I could have sworn one of your other projects had an album before that uh uh-uh. Okay, then never mind. Uh, but regardless, I mean, you were putting out a lot of music in, yeah, was, in those uh, years. Yeah,
1: um, so it was Plant, um, then some stuff on Nervous, then uh, stuff with Voltaburo for right. a few years. Yep. Um, and then... That was your trio, right? The trio yeah. with Output Message and Mike Avalian and some sort of techno stuff with a side project called Pentamin. And then from there, just releasing my own stuff. And and that's where that was like 2015. That was where the spigot got open. Cause it was like, look, I don't it was really interesting working with these labels and seeing the process. But look, they're all just throwing shit against the wall to see what works anyway. Yeah. You can do that. You can do that yourself. Mm. You can do that with your own songs. Like it really like opened up my Mindset and vibe in terms of like your artistic
0: output, and that to to sort of say I don't need to rely on the label. I don't necessarily need this cosine to validate me. I don't. I don't because I had already had other cosines. Right. Right. Like from that point, it was like
1: people saw me DJ and they're like, oh, he knows how to DJ. He's not just a producer. Right. right. And then people. Who knew me as a DJ Listen to my music and they're like, oh, he can also make music. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I've actually been making music I, since I was 15. Like, I joined my first band when I was 15. Like, that bass line on Feeling, my first single, I played that. Right. right. And Miguel played the guitar. We played actual instruments on these damn records. Yeah. Right. Like, and so that it was a good feeling to, for there to be like a synergy there. Um, but, you know, really. That releasing my own stuff was just a a godsend, mm. a godsend, um, and I've I've been fortunate. You know, I get some decent royalty checks from that stuff. Like, um,
0: well, and, that, I mean, and that's and some sinks too. It's it's cool. Well, yeah, know? it's it's something I don't know that everyone thinks about. Is that yes, sure. Like signing your music to a big prestigious label is great and will make you feel great and can be a really good thing for your career, but if you do it yourself, you own everything. Everybody else
1: owns that shit.
0: Yeah, everything good it. that happens to it, you get all the benefit. I mean, there's, it's maybe the scarier road at first, but it's, I don't know, man. You, I, I think the proof is that you see basically all of the giant artists of our time. They'll release with labels for a couple EPs, and then once they get some juice, they just yep. do it themselves. Absolutely. You know,
1: and, you know the, the, rec- the recording mm. industry really crap the bed a long time ago you know napster was was the real thing that that killed it but really like you know it's a largely it's a weird industry man it's a weird weird industry like you're, you're doesn't get much weirder you're selling your like creative output to somebody yeah that it it's like what other industry could you do this and get pennies on the dollar the way musicians do um that like actors would never right um you sell a painting you're getting a a lump sum right yeah you don't need to chase them down for your royalty payments (laughs) 20 years later right? right and so i was like look what what why are you waiting around for a label to notice this? Yeah, right? And furthermore, for a label to notice it and then be like, no, go in this direction because that's where it's going to
0: go. Like, just trust your gut. Yeah. Trust your gut. Mm. And and let's talk about, what I want to talk about the albums in a second, but leading up to that, I'm curious, you know, in that time, you also opened U-Haul, right? And uh, that must have been a whirlwind of... You know, uh, obligations on your time yeah, yeah. and having to sort of rebalance how your yes, whole career works. Absolutely. I mean, I could personally, I could see myself just sort of losing sight of what I had been doing beforehand because to me, especially in those early years, I mean, opening a club must have been very all consuming. Uh, I was
1: very naive as to how all consuming it would be. Yeah. I think we all were yeah. in a way. And to be clear, um, like uh, the doing the doing what I do part as a DJ and producer, yeah, I, I was have always been like, look, you cannot give this up because this is what makes me who I am right I wouldn't be able to run this club the way I run it unless I could look at it from the perspective of somebody who makes music and mm. DJs it it's a very different thing and mm. so right away I recognized like look those things are synergistic They're it's a yin and a yang you got to keep them both but also to be clear like sure the opening of it was a whirlwind lots of like stress and time but the amount I had five partners, so the amount of time that I've spent with it over time has increased,
0: right? So, <laughs> right. It, it wasn't... It, it, I at didn't this have point, the it's same, worth saying you're the sole owner now, Yeah, right? I'm, it's just me, yeah. right? I mean, it's interesting because in music, I think collaboration can elevate something, right? But it, it's interesting to think about it from the business standpoint and from sort of, I guess, a, a branding and a vision standpoint where you can't always satisfy everybody. Right. And sometimes you have to sort of define yourself in the sense that people are coming to this. They need to know what they're coming to. They need to identify with it. Am I? No, you're
1: absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's like, uh, like, like look, DJing is communication. Yeah. Right. Running a club is communication. Mm. You're communicating your narrative to your audience, like who plays here? You need right. to get the word out, right? And you need to be able to explain to people like why they should come to this show, which is on a Wednesday night and costs $25. Right. And you need to be convincing and authentic. And the only way you can do that is if you've really lived it Sure. Since you were a kid.
0: Well, right? and that's an interesting question, right? We mentioned, I mean, you took on the role of a talent buyer as well. And at that point, I have to assume, I mean, New Hall books very diverse lineups, all types of acts play here. So probably at a certain point, you couldn't just book just the stuff you like anymore, right? Absolutely. And, and that was a big part of the challenge. How do you, I mean, even today... How do you decide who to book? I feel like this is another thing that people just don't really know how it works. So, um, God, that that's an entire podcast right there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. And where that gets into relationships with booking <laughs> agents, uh, that's a very complicated question. But, but no, but, to answer your, your, yeah. your
1: question in the spirit of the question, I think I'd say like it's know what you know and know what you don't know, right? So for me, I do the dance music bookings yeah. that are done in-house. Now we do work with some outside promoters, a drum and bass promoter, a bass promoter who know their areas very, very well. Right. right? So we you work, just give them a night and we, say, do your thing. It's it's not just any night, right? Right. Because there's a zillion criteria that go into that. Of course. But it's just picking the right people to do the right jobs, just like you would a production manager or a marketing manager or anything like that. That's That's what it boils down to. Sure. Right. And in a lot of ways, I book U-Haul like I'm doing a big DJ set. Like I want it to be a certain level of progressive vision and quality that is communicating a narrative. And I will go through every month and listen to every upcoming artist on Spotify just to see like whether I booked it or not. Obviously if I booked it, I've heard it. <laughs> I've right. already done that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will put it in the context of the month and be like, okay, this promoter has this. We have this live band. We have this DJ after that. How does this fit together? What's jiving? What is not? How do we reappropriate that? It's all a big puzzle, thing, mm. right? And so, you know, to get back to like the whole um, collaborative spirit of it, like it is a big collaboration. But ultimately, when you're curating something, there needs to be a final say. Right. And the final say to, to from my perspective, always belongs to the person who has the most skin in that game. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the DJ who's put the lifetime of effort into that set. Right. right. It's the it's the music producer who's put the lifetime of emotion into that song. Right. Mm. So that's what it boils down to. It's like just pick the right stuff for the right job, and don't bullshit, and don't get out of your depth. Sure. Don't get out of your area of expertise. And but if trust you know the people you work yeah, with, right? Yeah, and and share information that's going to help
0: them. Yeah. So that they're encouraged to share the information that's going to help you. Yeah. Right. One another interesting thing I'm thinking about now is how much DC and the music scene here has changed since U Haul opened. Incredibly so, right? I mean, now, A, you're not the new, fresh, exciting venue anymore, and there's several competing, quote unquote, venues, right? Who do not the same thing, but similar events that maybe would draw the same crowd that would come here. That maybe didn't exist when you started. Yeah. Do you do you find competition energizing? Do you find it do you even think of it as competition? It, I try not to compete with anybody yeah. at u haul
1: People compete with us. Yeah. And
0: well, yeah, to be fair, we should say too, I mean, U-Haul, uh, one of the best clubs in the nation. I'm not just saying that because I'm your friend. I mean, that's what Rolling Stone said that. And I mean, I think it's been acknowledged well, at this point that you guys been fortunate have kind of to of set the accolades. bar. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And, and I think a lot of that was timing and degree of execution and all the rest of that. But yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot more places here. And I try not to look at it as competition. The way that we do our stuff is focusing on what we do best. Yeah. And that's always the way to success, period. It's when you try to focus on something that you shouldn't be doing mm. or that is not best
0: suited for you that sure. people get in the weeds. It's simple as that. Yeah, and Or if you get insecure, like say a new club opens up and you see they're doing well, doing something that you don't do and you think, oh, maybe I should do what they're doing. That to me. I mean, you see it with yeah. DJs and yeah. producers too, right? You can't do that. You have no integrity. Right. Like, just stick to your guns.
1: Like yeah. And so we thought long and hard about who we wanted to be. I thought long and hard about who I wanted to be and I decided a long time ago. And so that's made it easier to stay the course in certain programmatic angles. right? And um, so, yeah, I I feel like we really helped encourage a lot of people in DC to enter this sphere because they saw that it could be done. Mm. And, I'm very proud and happy about that because I think we have a great scene in a community in D.C. And some of those, of those clubs and promoters have done a really good job of doing something that wasn't already there, something that we don't do here. And others haven't, right? And it's just like, to me, it's like you're not going to get it until you get it. Right. Right? So um, it's just like anything else, whether it's producing or DJing. It's, it's, it's like surfing There's no, there's no (laughs) rules to it, but there are also a lot of things you can't do if you want to do it successfully. So just figure it out. Right. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, we, we, we have, um, stayed true to the primary, in my opinion, the primary, um, principles of U-Haul that we set forth when we open. One is that it is democratic and open for everyone. And that goes for music programming as well. It is a music hall. It is not a nightclub. We do Mm -hmm. not only have DJs, period. And it's funny because we got known as a DJ club and people talked about it as a DJ club. And then they were like weirded out when all these bands like Sam Smith and people started playing here. And it was like, did you not notice the stage that (laughs) has literally been there since day one? Like, but people don't always look outside going back to like, me in Minneapolis, like right. being in the band scene and being in the DJ scene, people aren't aren't looking at the forest, they're looking at the trees in sure. their own lives. It's your job to make it compelling to them to look a little bit outside of looking at their feet down on the ground, like yep. just look at something else. Like, And if you come here for an early show and there's a DJ thing after, you end up staying for it, like... Or just looking at our calendar and being like, "Hey, I haven't checked this out. I want to check something else different out."
0: That's that's success to me. Yeah, man. So, and I mean, you've had uh, I, just everyone has played here at this point. I mean, DJs obviously, everyone, everyone has played here. But even even artists from other disciplines. I mean, we were tight. You mentioned, say, Sam Smith. Last time I saw you, you mentioned when Drake popped up here. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Drake was here. <laughs> it's crazy to me, man. Uh, I think that's amazing, you know, because that can kind of underpin not only the dance scene, the electronic scene, but that's just contributing to the community, you broader,
1: know? broader culture, man. Yeah, it's like <laughs> if you're not here to contribute to the culture through music, why are you here? That that's that's the only thing anybody will ever remember, guys like you and me for.
0: Yeah, like well, like it's... is the music. So if you're not here to push it forward. Why are you here? I have to think, too, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but if I put myself in your shoes and, you know, I'm going along as a DJ and producer, I'm touring, and then I open this club and that ends up becoming this thing that gets way bigger than I thought it was going to be and becomes this big influence, not only from where I'm from, but kind of all over the country, artists are talking about it. Big names are coming to play. I would have a weird ego thing where suddenly it's not about me anymore and it's about this thing I've created. But now I think about it and I think about what you've done with it. And I mean, the effect you've had in nine years of running this venue. I mean you've affected more people, more artists, certainly more fans of music than I think any of us could as an individual artist, right? It's
1: it's been beautiful. It's it's been really beautiful and I um I like that in a way it's it's kind of it's kind of weird, maybe a little perverse. I like in a way that it's like nobody thinks of me as the the talent buyer of U Street Music Hall. Mm. Nobody, nobody, everybody thinks of me as a DJ and a music producer and, and the owner of the club. But people have no idea that I've been the lead talent buyer since day <laughs> right. one, right? And that's, that's okay because like, I still identify as an artist. I don't, I, even though I'm deeply in the music industry, I don't primarily identify as a music industry guy. Right. I identify myself as an artist and a music lover. Yeah. And certainly, you know, my first, Uh, Remix came out in 07. First single came out in 09. We opened in 2010. And then, really, most definitely, when U Haul became a thing, an internationally known thing, it was definitely the bigger fire in the room that sucked the oxygen away from my artist and DJ fire. Yeah. Right. And was that hard, ego wise? um, I think. You know, I I won't. I won't lie. For for some, mostly for like internal conversations that we had here amongst me and my partners. Um, Sometimes it it hurt, but um, no, it's been beautiful to just watch it grow because I'm very aware that despite all of this big flame and visibility it is still my career as a DJ and a producer that keeps me grounded in this and able to do it in a way that's beautiful. Right. And, and that career is stronger than ever. Right. I just released my second album. Yeah, which is exactly like, where I was heading.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is so the,
1: so the U-Haul Fire did not completely the the – Artist and DJ Fire, it just like put it on the back burner for a while. But right. I now feel that I have more fuel in my tank and flexibility to take this to places I never could have imagined like 10 years ago as an artist. Because for one thing, I can have complete integrity as an artist. I don't need to worry about anything right. for it selling. I don't need to worry about shit. In terms of a DJ, I never have to have an agent or worry about gigs. I can DJ whenever and wherever I want now. Yeah. On my terms. Right. With the people I want to DJ with playing what I feel like playing. Absolutely. And that's a beautiful thing to have in this industry. Yeah, because having, people fight for that. Sure. They work so hard for that. And so it's like I've... I'm just now beginning to reap the rewards of having that flexibility.
0: Right, and you don't have to rely on the next gig to pay your rent, right? And I don't, don't nor the next trend. I don't have to right. jump on any exactly. trend. I don't give a shit about anything. You can operate. <laughs> well, yeah, that's- <laughs> I don't give a I mean, shit. that's literally the dream, man. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you can just operate from a place of pure creativity, right? And yeah, it doesn't, it's beautiful. And it doesn't matter. I test out tracks yeah. here.
1: You know, nine times out of 10 when I'm on the road, I wish I was playing at U-Haul anyway. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it's a beautiful privilege to be able
1: to play here as often as I have. I don't think anybody's DJed more at U-Haul than I have. Right. And, and um, that is just simply like a winning lottery ticket, <laughs> really. Like I feel so fortunate about that because it's not just the sound. It's the vibe, it's yeah. the community, it's the staff, it's the people here, it's the people who've been coming here since 2010. Yeah. People who are coming to my parties before that and new people. Yeah, And now in the past couple of years, I I really approached U-Haul when we opened in 2010, like run a marathon, like a sprint. And I ran and worked on it as hard and as fast as I could until one day I got to a point where I'm like, <sighs> we're still in business. (laughs) We're, we're not going to go bankrupt. Maybe not this, this year. Yeah. Right. Right. So like, okay, relax a little bit. Right.
0: Is that when you took a step back? That, that was 2015. Yeah. Yeah, I took a step back, handed it off to the staff for six months. And I was like, okay, you got this. And is that when you started writing the music that would eventually be on the my first album? album? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the start of it. Hmm. You know,
1: I, I, I released a a solo single on Nervous called Sugar and then went to work right away. Did a couple EPs for Main Course. Remember Jeremiah? and Bot, Bot, Astronomar. Shout out to all of those guys. Then uh, that was when Hilo, the idea for Hilo was born. I spent a lot of time working on it in 15 and 16.
0: I I know you've told this story umpteen times, but I, I feel like it's just such an amazing story that, We should probably mention it is, you know, where the title of that album comes from. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, about, let's see, 2014, end of 2013, I learned that I'd been adopted and it had been kept um, secret uh, from me my entire life. Learned this as a as a grown man. How, so yeah,
0: and so, you're what? How old at that? I was point? 45, 45 at that point,
1: 45 years old. Fuck, crazy. Yeah, crazy. And it's a long, convoluted story. I've talked about it with media, and it's it's. I've come to terms with it. I understand why and how it came about, and uh, I, I'm I'm going to work on a memoir about that at some point. You should. Um, I've been gathering notes for it, and uh, but um, yeah, I learned that I'd been adopted, and I. Tracked down my birth parents, met them, and um, Hilo is the name of the airport that I landed on the island of Hawaii to, you know, meet my birth father's family where wow. they grew up for the first time. So that was sort of the that's the backdrop of that album, which is very much about the emotional kind of prolapse and trauma and I beautiful moments. It's, it's beautiful moments too, right. you know.
0: But you know, at age forty-five, because I think you know that kind of story—finding out that you're adopted, meeting your birth parents—if that happens to anyone at all, it usually tends to happen when when they're they're a lot younger, younger, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, for you at that age, already having a life, a career, an identity, I can only imagine. I mean. Look, it, 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 emotionally, it, but it, also artistically, right? It just completely threw my life a curveball.
1: Yeah. That, that um, you know, I'll, I'll flesh out in this memoir someday. But right. at that point, I chose to process it as an artist and to make a concept album about what it felt like to learn I was adopted and how I dealt with it and how the, the emotions and the narrative of that sort of two years of my life that that was the first album I did. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, I'm very proud of it. And um, I'm glad that I was able to communicate that narrative. I wouldn't want to relive it. It was just how I chose to process it at that point in my life.
0: I mean, it's amazing you could sort of channel it into that. You know what I mean? Because I think... I even think about it for myself, I don't know for me if i if something traumatic happens or if something shocking happens you know usually my i i tend to retreat you know i tend to pull back well i was working on an album i was working on music
1: and i saw it manifesting itself everywhere and i decided like just let it happen mm. D- don't don't rein it in yeah just just tap into it let it happen see where it goes and and there were You know, half the, I could do a B-sides for both the albums, but they wouldn't be as good. But I could do B-sides and there was stuff in there that was pretty decent that got the ax because I had to be like, what tells the story of this experience Mm. that I'm talking about here the best? And those were the eight songs that made Hilo. Wow. Right there from beginning to end.
0: Wow. Froggy to Limitless. And I still remember that. It's a great album too, man. I still remember when you first sent me that. Thanks. Thanks. It
1: it was, I think a lot of people were like, huh, what's this? Like, is this deep house? Is this like piano upbeat house that Will's done before? This doesn't sound like new disco, which is like how we first got to know this guy by playing funky beats. Like some of it is club music, but some
0: of it is just music, right? It's, it's music. It's electronic music. But again, just like what you were saying you were operating from that zone where it didn't yeah. really matter, right? Exactly. Yeah. I had no label to please. I had no deadline for that album. It was done when I said it was done. Right. And then that's how you progress onto whatever yeah. you're going to do next, right? Yeah. And so now, I mean, a year later you drop another album. Yeah. I mean, is, is this going to be a thing? Are you... Um, well, so it was actually um,
1: two years Two years, yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 so Well, even so, that's a good pace. I had pace. originally aimed for a year, but it took a year <laughs> yeah, extra. of course. Two years, I would be happy if I could do that. But to be honest, I haven't worked on a song in six months. Mm. I'm just not in an artistic moment right now. Yeah. I'm really loving DJing right now. And I'm not going to force it because the first two came about so organically and they were, they came when they were ready to come, right. So the next one will come. I'm not worried about it. Yeah,
0: and I mean, and I think the reception to both, especially the the second album, which is Breathe, right? Yeah, uh, was was really good, right? It's it's it got
1: great reaction amongst the DJ community, right? Like. The the promo feedback was amazing. It was beautiful and to see to that. To be
0: honest, from an ego perspective,
1: that's kind of the only thing yeah. I care about. <laughs> but the, the press and blog love was a lot more muted. And I think it's because it's a really like kind of deeply it it's a chill album. Right. Right. It's a pretty chill album. Yeah. And and it's basically like me processing this age that we're in right now, right? That our our times. Yeah. And I had originally started coming up with an album that was Hilo part two, mm. you know, had guest vocalists on it. It wasn't, it wasn't about the same subject matter, but I was like, I already made that album. I'm gonna make a different album. So I decided to make an album that was deeply steeped in all of my inspirations for music, like dance music in particular. Right. So there's a breakbeat on it. There's like uh but I also included like all of my like guitar rock band love. There's some trip hop. There's some shoegaze. It's kind of all over the place. And um, I think that any label, unless I was already famous and successful, would look at it and be like, oh. How do we market this? Right. And I was like, I, I don't care. That's why I don't have a label. I'm just putting <laughs> it out. Right? right. The reaction has been great from the community. More tracks from this album ended up in DJ mixes than the first album. You know, more tracks ended up getting, you know in playlists or whatever. And um I'm just happy because I get to do exactly the music that I want to do without anyone else that i need to answer to
0: yeah is there anything we haven't covered is there anything else you want to get out there uh i know we haven't mentioned the the disco yeah i mentioned but- bliss pop disco fest i started this last year
1: and you know if anybody knows my my bliss party and wh- why i'm known as a dj it's because i love playing disco funk, funky house disco new disco old disco all all of it disco edits underground disco i love it all right and so i had no idea why there wasn't a disco festival yet and i had this idea with a bunch of friends and asked a bunch of my colleagues in this area from classics breakbot, whomever all these people i'd known and booked and dj with for a long time and they were like yeah you should do it This is like going back three or four years and then nobody did it. And so finally I was like, well, I'm just going to do it. Fuck it. So we got Giorgio Moroder and Clapton to do the first one. And now this year we're doing it again, September 27th and 28th in DC. Uh, Two nights, six shows at the 930 Club and U Street Music Hall. Don't miss it just wait till this lineup drops. I'm very proud of it. I've been working on it since the last fest ended. And it's been beautiful because the artist reaction's great. People get it. They're like, oh, I understand it. What you're trying to do here. Right. Let's come play
0: this thing. Right, it." of course. And it's, I, I love, again, it's the strength of the vision. It's a very specific thing. You look at it, you know what it is. It's from a trusted team, a trusted artist in yourself. And it's, again, instantly identifiable. You know what you're getting. All the disco fans out there, all the, the indie fans out there, keep an eye on that. It's worth traveling for, for sure. The the last thing that I feel like we should talk about, we touched on it for just a second, is the just because I know people are super interested in this, the relationship between a talent buyer versus a booking agent versus a promoter. Oh yeah. And just the, you know, in terms of a day to day bird's eye view, how that operation works from your perspective in terms of, you know, thinking, Hey, I would like this person to play at my nightclub. Oh yeah. And how does that actually, you know, what is your experience of how that actually ends up happening until they're actually here playing a show? Well, it is often long and labyrinthine, yeah.
1: And um, if Cause it's, I,
0: that's, I don't think people understand how long these. Just to book one person playing one night, yeah. How like, long like that just to take. give
1: you an idea, like, um, you know, I'm solidifying some stuff. It's 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 uh, it'll be May tomorrow. I'm solidifying some stuff for December, right? Yeah. That we won't announce for months and months, you know and it's, it's already lined up. But that conversation started sometimes six months ago, Yeah, because there's just lots of stuff you gotta talk about. And really, in, in a nutshell, if it's something that you really want, you have a specific vision for, it's not on tour, you, you just hit people up. You just talk to people, ask them if it'll make work. If it's a routed tour, the agent will hit up all the promoters they think are best, and we have good relationships with people. And, um, the, that's what it often boils down to. Like it can be a very simple, uh, tr- transaction or conversation. If you have a good relationship with Back the agents and promoter, right. And if you don't, then it can be more difficult yeah. and, and that's no fun for anybody. So the best way to do it is just to work with integrity, try to do a great job every time, when you fuck up and everybody fucks up, I don't care who you are. At some point, somebody in this business is going to crap the bed, whether they realize it or not. Right. There could be something where it's like, Oh, I forgot to send the tech writer advance. And it's like, that's on you, dude. Right. Like (laughs) you may be at home in bed and somebody's having a shitty show because they didn't know what the setup is. Yeah. But when you crap the bed, apologize right away. And, uh, Hopefully, you know, if you work hard, you'll get some cool stuff in, and people support it, and you get to build something,
0: right? I, I it all comes back to to intentions and and relationship. I think yes. those are kind of the the themes of this whole conversation. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, intentions matter. You can't hope to come out with a
1: great outcome unless you go into it with intentions to have a great outcome,
0: because otherwise.
1: Murphy's Law, it's going to go south one way or another. You will end up with something that does not remotely resemble the great show that you had imagined happening, right? So you have to come in with the intention and the imagination that it's going to happen. And then you just solve all the little problems every day that makes it happen. It's really that simple and also that
0: hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's both very easy and almost impossible. (laughs) Which is, I mean, that's that's what you're here doing, man. I And that's love it. what you do as a DJ. That's what you do as a producer, Absolutely. right? It's like, oh, I can't
1: get the sound. I can't, oh, this, this track didn't work. How are you going to recover from that track? You're going to, you're not going to recover from just not acknowledging that you didn't make a mistake right. and just keep going down that path. You got to right the ship. You yeah. got it. You got
0: to. And recognize when it's not working, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 100%, man. Well, I, you know, on a personal note, you know, we we talked a lot about those formative years at the Sunday night dance party at First Ave. Uh, to me, man, like I was around DC when you guys first opened U-Haul And it really did, especially the first time around when I lived here six years ago, I was kind of disconnected. I was in a weird mental place. And and haul really, for me, was that home again. And it was kind of a centering place. And so I'll always be really thankful for that. Uh, just being there. I mean, I've also gotten to play here a lot, which is super fun and I want to do all the time. But just in terms of a community spot and and a place to feel like home. I was always really thankful for that, man. So I'm I'm really happy you're still here doing it. I'm glad we get to talk like this. It was really fun. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, without you, it's just a
1: haul. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I can't take credit for that joke. That's no, br- pretty good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Last question. Uh, I ask this at the end of every episode. Um, just uh, the first thing that comes to your mind, you don't have to think about it too hard. Just a time in your life, uh, a memory, and it could be from recently or from when you were a kid, any time when, in a moment, uh, music really deeply affected you and that's meant to be a very broad question that you can interpret as you want it could be something that you heard that stopped you in your tracks it could be something that changed the way you thought about something it could just be something you heard on the radio once that you really like first thing that pops into your head sure um i would say that
1: um when i heard blue monday for the first time Mm. like I remember vividly like the kick drums. And, 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 and I was just a little anxious because I recognized right away that this music is something otherworldly um and that I would need to to find out about it. But at that point, you didn't have Shazam and stuff. So you had to like actually hunt it out. And I remember going to the store and seeing the, the uh, floppy disk sleeve and being like, that is it. <laughs> I need to have this. Yeah. Right? And just like listening to it over and over again and just being like, you, you, you can hear a couple notes. It can change your life. If if you're if you're
0: attuned to how it can change your life, it can re- literally change your life. Yeah. Music. Yeah. You said it all. I couldn't even really add much onto that, but I've definitely had those moments too. And you know, let's go crank Blue Monday on the system. Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
1: Thank you, man. <laughs> Thanks, Willie. Peace. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>
0: That's the show Shout out to Will So great to hang out with you man That was such a fun night For everybody out there listening I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did Don't forget Very soon Will is going to be announcing the lineup For the second annual Bliss Pop Disco Fest in DC If you're a fan of disco You cannot miss this I already know some of the artists who are playing It's a crazy lineup Will's album Breathe Came out last year Fantastic album And I'm going to put a link in the description of this episode where you can go find all of his music, the tour dates, all the information about U Street Music Hall, all in that link. My name is Willie Joy. You can always keep up with me to backtobackpod at gmail.com is the email address, or you can hit me up at Willie Joy or at backtobackpod on all social media. That's it for this week. Thank you to our sponsor, Serato, as always. I hope everyone out there has a great rest of your week. I'm going to go enjoy the rest of my birthday here. I hope you have a great one. Take care of yourself. Take care of the people around you. And I will talk to you next week. For Back to Back, this is Willie Joy. Peace. (laughs)